Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 78 for December the 20th, 2011. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and my guest this week is Gary Kerhonen. Uh, he's a global escalation support engineer uh, here on our team in Vancouver. Welcome to the podcast, Gary. Thank you very much, Chet. I know I didn't get your name right, but I, I came. I, I made a college try at it. You did. You tried. This may be the last chat chat of the year. We'll see how ambitious I am. I've been a bit slow this last quarter, but uh, it's been it's been very busy, so it's been hard to uh, find the time. And I was happy that Gary had a few minutes to sit down with me here today to cover kind of the the wrap up of the year's news. Uh, a few promises to start out with. I promise not to make predictions about what's going to happen in 2012. No prognostications at all. No, we're not going to talk about the cloud. No clouds and uh, pure sunlight. We at this might point. even avoid mentioning the iPad. So. Um, and I'm not going to talk about what I think was the most fantastical thing of the year either. So we'll leave that all to the other pundits and kick off with, uh, to me, the most interesting story on the board today, the Internet Explorer. So Microsoft, uh, right before Patch Tuesday last week, announced they're going to automatically upgrade IE users from whatever version of IE to the latest, which I, I'm being very vague about this because I guess on Windows XP, you can't get IE9. That's, yeah, from what I've read so far, that's the case. Yeah, so I think you have to, XP users will get bumped to IE8 and then uh, 7, Vista, 2008, etc. will go to 9. And there's some kind of blocker app you can load as well. So they've released a special thing you can download that is an IE9 blocker or an IE8 blocker if you're like in a corporate environment or even as a home user, if you want to make sure that your Windows update, if in any way it's automated, is not going to decide to upgrade you. Uh, initially, it's going to be, I believe, Australia and something weird, Venezuela or something. Actually, yeah, it was South America. I think it was Brazil and was Brazil? a couple other places from what I read. Yeah, so they're going to start rolling it out there first. So obviously, uh, I imagine the last in the world will be the United States or UK, etc., where they're more worried about disruption, and apparently everybody else can uh, <laughs> bite them. That's right. Uh, yeah, the soft launch approach here. Yeah, well, I know we see a lot of vendors doing this. I know this with Android as well. I have a Samsung Android device where they roll it out in Denmark, and then they roll it out in Ireland, and then they roll it out in Canada, and eventually they wrap up with the U.S. and Germany. That's and right. Increasingly large markets. Yeah. So we'll we'll see what happens. I mean, I'm really torn about it. I thought to me it was mostly interesting as a political question because I don't think any of us in security would doubt that. IE9 is the best option if you're going to run Internet Explorer. And to be fair, security has been much more of a priority for Microsoft in the last two releases. And, you know, IE9 is pretty solid. And, you know, I, I won't get into the, is it more secure than Chrome or Firefox or this, that, and the other thing. But they're all pretty damn good right now. Yeah, at this point, it's, it, they're really solidified. You know, you think about things like the uh, security configuration options that prevent access to certain things. You think about um, what security features are introduced and whatnot. And you compare it to, like, IE six ie5 going backwards once ie7 came around it just it felt it started like, getting better yeah, yeah they locked it down well and and they've got all this new safe browsing stuff where they you know they check checksums of your downloads to see how popular they are have they seen them before they've been reported good or bad and i'm not gonna you know i i'm not all that keen on some of the security things microsoft uh, touts in ie9 but i would say it's a it's a secure browser it's a safe browser to use most of the time so it's a good thing to move people forward but what's interesting is that microsoft unlike Chrome and Firefox, uh, which have both been quite successful at keeping people up to date and current, 
Um, I know Firefox is going to start automatically updating very similar to Chrome. They're all going this direction because these vulnerabilities, people are leaving themselves at risk unnecessarily uh, much of the time. But Microsoft's kind of built themselves their own little problem, haven't they? I no, mean, this, this is the hole that they've sort of dug in the, themselves into. You think about like what was released, uh, like the posters about sour milk, the IE9 things that were indicating that like, hey, everybody. This browser is really old. Would you use old milk? Would you buy old food and whatnot? And there's this browser they indicate, yeah, the security warning. So it's like almost they're like looking at themselves and saying, look what this can't do. But they set themselves up to do that. It's well, there's lock in, right? Why do we need an IE899 blocker? I mean, the, the reality is almost every organization I work with uh, from Sophos perspective, they've got something out there where they built in some proprietary Microsoft stuff in 2002, 2003, 2004. That relies on ActiveX controls or VB script in a website or very IE specific stuff that Microsoft thought was going to let them own the web. Yeah. And it was almost like a forward thinking way of doing it, saying that, okay, you had to deal with all these browser issues before. But if you get up to now to IE6, you get this feature, this feature connects to these things. And at that point, it's integrated and it works. But now it's almost like solidified in that point. And now everything's just sort of gone past them and everyone's still stuck, you know, at this point. No one needs to upgrade their accounting software all the time. No one needs to you know, jump to a wiki quite yet. Yeah, I guess maybe maybe the cloud will help them out with this. As everybody <laughs> abandons Microsoft back office software that requires all the proprietary crap that's in right. IE6, um, <laughs> and everybody moves to the cloud, uh, you know, then they'll be able to upgrade their IE. I guess the problem for Microsoft would be there's no revenue in IE, and there's lots of revenue in all that back office proprietary exactly. stuff. But uh, So I, I think it's interesting. We'll see how it ends up playing out, how many companies don't know or don't notice that this is happening, and it screws them over. Um, I mean, I, normally I applaud these types of things, but in particular with IE, most people consciously are on a specific version for a reason outside of the home environment. And uh, those of you that are IT administrators, if you weren't aware of this, be on it. Make sure you make a conscious decision of what version you want to run and how you manage it. Yeah, make sure you're aware of which uh, services you actually do run within your organization because a lot of times, yeah, there's a reason you're using IE6. Yeah, I, and the compatibility mode is quite good in IE9 too. I, I, yeah. I use some internal systems here at Sophos that work best with IE as it were. And uh, one of them does require me to click the little compatibility icon thing in the location bar in IE9, but it does work. I don't have any issues. It, 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 the, the other end seems to think I'm running IE7, and it, I don't think I'm having any problems. I'm not pushing it to the limits. But uh, Carrier IQ is another big story we haven't really covered here yet in the chat chat. I don't want to go rehash all of it. It got plenty of both necessary and unnecessary press during its highlights over the last month or so. But what I think is interesting is just uh, the idea, a couple ideas. I mean, one, the guy that found it originally labeled it as a rootkit because it was embedded and hidden in the firmware of the Android device that he discovered it on. And, and I disagree with that. I mean, it's not the definition of a rootkit and it doesn't have rootkit-like behavior. However, the cloaking, the secrecy of it, uh, that I think is part of the story here. Like hiding software in your software. It's sort of like if we had a backdoor in our encryption. I mean, for every tech support call we get from somebody who's lost their encryption keys, begging us to help them get to the data they've lost on this laptop that's now locked up. And it's like, um, we would help you if you could, but if we could help you, we'd also put ourselves out of business. Um, hiding stuff and having secret backdoors and all these kinds of things, embedding software in a way that is secret immediately raises alarm bells with anyone, whether it's a truly a root kit by definition or it isn't. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it doesn't it make you wonder like what else is in the firmware? How many things might have been mandated to just be in the phone itself to begin with for 
government interception purposes or who knows what else. No, that's um, right. You just think about the messaging behind this. Like right now, this was discovered that, you know, this information was being captured, even though they're, they're saying that's not being used specifically. But the idea is like, it just takes that first dip in the water at that point. We realize, oh, what else are they doing? I mean, right now. Well, and there's stuff too, too. They've got the Streisand effect going on yeah. because they threatened to sue. So you've got this hidden piece of software that this guy flips out about, and then yeah. you threaten to sue him. So now you've got... Now there's something that's a cover-up. I mean, that that's maybe it's not a cover-up, but it is very suspicious behavior. Like at that point now, they're hiding something. It's, it's strange. Right. And then the third part becomes, so after they back down from the lawsuit and they've got all the media attention and they've got to explain why this thing is capturing keystrokes, they come out and say, oh, well, we needed to look for key combinations because if you call tech support at AT AT&T, they might say hit pound 7171 and that enables some extra logging mode that would allow us to diagnose something on your phone. And now last week they came out and said, actually, no, it was a bug that debugging mode was on that we were capturing all those keystrokes. So you're getting like lies and mistruths and re- misdirection and hidden software. And it's so shady. I, it, I'm, I'm astonished. You know, I mean, just, if you were just listen to this message like, like one after another, as opposed to letting a week or so sit by, you're like, something's off. Well, the, and my question was, where are the carriers in all this? Okay, so your Verizon, or Verizon's the only one that didn't. I'll give them a pass. Uh, T-Mobile, Sprint, and AT&T, um, they offer you this software to get this telemetry data, which would be very useful for mobile carriers, although arguably half the information they already have, which is a bit strange. Like, you know, your SMSs and your location and stuff is already something they know from your their towers. Um, yeah, they, but, can, they can triangulate where you are. Yeah, but to. I guess failed calls and stuff, you can't know that something failed because yep. it didn't connect. Um, but, you know, you're, you're buying this software and you're going, oh, could you completely hide this? Because the software doesn't have to be hidden the way it's normally packaged. It's just a normal package. Uh, it, it's all quite disturbing. And, and I guess the main reason I wanted to put it on the list to just bring it up during the podcast today was uh, for users of T-Mobile USA that may be on Blackberries, that was another one that was using it. And that concerned me a lot more. I mean, Corporate users on iPhones and Androids already are introducing themselves to a world of compliance risk by allowing these smartphones that are not very controllable into their environments. Um, but when we're talking about BlackBerry users, oh my! I mean, like, what yeah, about- just think about all the internal data that you know is just talked about within like an organization that way, and now suddenly, oh, it's going out. Yeah, or HIPAA and PCI. Or, yeah. It makes me think about when President Obama was first elected and they were like, ooh, we got to get him this special BlackBerry. Was it so they could remove the spyware? <laughs> I would <laughs> hope so. Um, so sticking on the topic of smartphones, uh, I, I, I was the last podcast I had Paul Ducklin on, and Paul and I discussed a little bit of Chris DeBona from Google's comments mm-hmm. that uh, people selling security software for the Android product are charlatans and con artists, I believe the... Was that the exact wording there? Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I know it was charlatans. I'm trying to remember if it was con artists or scammers, uh, exactly the terminology used. But uh, Duck had wrote an interesting rebuttal on Naked Security, um, kind of highlighting where things really sit and maybe that Mr. DeBona should do a little more research into the security of the platform. And it turns out a week later, uh, 22 malicious Android games were uh, removed from the Android market. I heard somewhere that was close to maybe a million dollars in fraudulent charges to uh, Android users. who had, Yeah, because it was using a SMS at that point, just uh, texting premium numbers. Yeah, the premium rate SMS scam, which is kind of like, the, you know, if the genesis of email spam was Canadian pharmacies in 2000, 
really hitting it big and proving a business model. I think the same thing is true with premium rate SMS. We used to see this on the Symbian platform much earlier, uh, 10 years ago, and it kind of proved a model of making things work for the criminals. And uh, there's no reason to give up a good thing. Nope. (laughs) Um, But, you know, 22 of these apps, and and the problem is that there seems to be absolutely no filtering at Google. And, And we were talking about this before the podcast. I mean, people don't like the, quote, walled garden that's right. That Apple has up. You're an iPhone user. How do you feel about the walled garden on your own device? I, I take a look at that at times. I'm like, really? Does it really need to filter out against things like this? Does Does there really have to be a gatekeeper that takes a look at every application? Because I mean, at this point, it's like seven, eight digits worth of apps there right now. And is there one really sort of looking, well, we can't service something like that. But I mean, that just seems highly arbitrary. I've heard the family argument used, which I find a bit odd because Apple's devices clearly don't seem to be designed to allow you to restrict your children from purchasing stuff from your iTunes account unlimitedly. That's not a word I know, but no, no letters, please. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I, you know, there, there was, uh, I was just watching The Daily Show last night where they're making fun of Tapfish and the fact that there was some $99 add-on that you could get in iTunes and some guy's credit card was maxed out by his 10-year-old. Just by pressing on button and then, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't buy the family argument that Apple uses. Uh, although we have to give them credit. I mean, from a malware perspective, there's been some proof of concept stuff in the iTunes store. But aside from that, the lockdown platform, un- unrooted, uh, un- unjailbroken devices have been largely secure. I mean, if that's if that's one of their goals, they're getting there. Whereas, I mean, Google is taking the Facebook approach, which is sort of this pay $5 to be a developer and all you have to do is have a f- stolen credit card to sign up. Yeah, it, it just seems crazy. I mean, at that point, the API just dangled like someone's house keys. You're like, here you go. Yeah, and, and I mean... I like the openness of being able to get whatever I want, everybody having a truly open platform, yeah. but there, there seems to be some missing pieces that, uh, you know, maybe you know, Android has a pretty granular uh, permission system. So I'm wondering if maybe they should be looking at things and going anything that's asking access to make phone calls, send SMSs, yeah, something blah, that just blah, does blah, triggers a, a, yeah. a thing that requires review before it goes into the market. Yeah. Like if it's maybe just, just a little QA thing, maybe just something just, okay, let's see what happens when this can happen. Like this is installed and or downloaded onto the phone and then okay let's see what communications come out yeah because facebook's argument's always been they don't want to restrict app developers from being able to enjoy the platform they want people to be nimble and come up with creative ideas and make it really easy to allow people to develop for the facebook platform but along with that has come a whole ton of scams and and, and spam and stuff and i think we're seeing the same thing happen in the android market yeah. so they've got to figure out some kind of happy medium where if your app is innocuous and the permissions that it needs perhaps it can be auto-reviewed through the system and published automatically like it is today. But maybe there's certain permissions when that app's asking permission that it, you know a human gets involved or a more strenuous process kicks in to, to validate that that application is, in fact, not harmful. Yeah, I mean, looking at the titles of what the applications they were as well, too, they were just common, like, free games that, you know, should actually have a proper author behind it. I mean, you look at it, Angry Birds Free that is compromised by this. You're like, okay, did anyone talk to Rovio? What, like, what's what happened? What was the breakdown along the line here? Yeah, I saw the same thing yesterday. I'm trying to remember what it was on my Android. I went to load an app, and uh, the top app was listed as some random company I'd never heard of. Oh, I know what it was. I was cooking, and I wanted to get uh, – I thought, oh, I wonder if Food TV has an app for me to pull up recipes on my tablet while I'm cooking in the kitchen. So I go in the Food TV app. There's like eight down in the list when I search Food TV, and it was $3 or something, which I wasn't going to pay for an app that I can just use a web browser. But yeah. um, the the fake one at the top was like some other random publisher and it was called like the food network tv app you know blah 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 and it was free and i mean my instinct if i didn't know what was going on would have been oh i'll pick the free one not the one that's three dollars yeah. 
so it's easy, I imagine, for consumers to fall for these things. But um, I guess it will all start with Chris pulling his head out of his butt and Google waking up to the fact that there actually is an issue. And once they acknowledge there's an issue, they've got an unlimited resource of really, really smart people over there. I'm sure that they can come up with some better solutions for this. But as long as they're denying it's a problem, we're going to continue to see this. Yeah, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Um, the last story uh, to wrap up is uh, there was a hospital in Atlanta that was shut down due to a malware outbreak. And there are all kinds of really interesting things that come to mind when that kind of thing happens. My, my Not my favorite, I shouldn't say, but the one that caught me most interestingly was a comment on Naked Security when I posted the article from a reader that said, uh, so if this malware ends up making a system malfunction that kills a patient, will they be able to charge the person who wrote the malware with homicide? Yeah, what what are the liability concerns when something like that happens? Like, what what is the hospital administration supposed to be responsible for on having something like that on their system? Then, so you look at the authorship of who wrote it, how it got on the system, and then how it got that far to the point where someone was impacted. Yeah, I I mean, <clears throat> I'm curious why so many critical systems are running commodity operating systems and things. I realize that everybody's under a budget crunch, and yeah. to buy a Windows box that is easy to maintain and is well known to staff and all this stuff is a really cheap way to go about it. But it almost makes you yearn for the old green screen days. I mean, it is a medical record after all in most of these cases. And, uh, you know, you've got one side where doctors and I said I wasn't going to do it. Doctors are bringing iPads in to try to have a brilliant way of reading a CAT scan or an MRI. And it probably gives them a, a ability and flexibility that truly is improving patient care. But on the other side, it's like this unregulated, uncontrolled commodity thing that has God knows what flaws. And when these types of incidents happen, I mean, we don't know what happened here. There's a lot of speculation that it might be yeah. conficker, but it could be a, a, a could be a zero day worm. It's hard to know what it was. And I don't want to um, cast aspersions on the hospital to say they did or didn't do any given thing. But I've got a reasonable amount of experience working with medical institutions and IT work. And almost all of them are horribly unpatched and out of date. And the manufacturers of the medical devices prohibit companies from updating. They're like, oh, well, I mean, we have a, we have a large manufacturer that um, we service at Sophos that has robots that have Windows 95 on them. Um, because the company who makes the robots won't support the robot if they try to upgrade them. And they're in this nightmare scenario of, well, how do we protect something there's no patches for? You know, can you get antivirus that works? Isn't that good enough? It has to be good enough. What choice do you have? Well, at that point, that's, well, at least what they sort of engineered and worked with at the time. But then once you start networking these things and once it becomes available outside, I mean, there's the controls. I mean, the thing is the internet at this point has sort of grown past whatever's locked down in this network. But if you just leave it unpatched, I mean, it's just sort of like, you know, almost being a, a area just prone, just ripe for the picking there. Yeah, I think that's why a lot of us were speculating things like config or it's likely a technician brought in a poison USB stick by accident or a guest plugged into the network, yeah. um, that type of thing. But it, it's real challenging. And I guess in these environments like uh, PLCs, when we were talking about the attacks on the uh, municipalities and SCADA systems and all this and, and also in hospitals and things, what, you know, there is no outside, which is my mantra for 2011, uh, you know, if you think that there's an inside and an outside, you're doing it wrong. It's yeah. all the outside. In that case, you, what do you do in these environments now where you lack the ability to lock them down and control them properly? They're providing critical services, but you're in a budget situation where there's no alternative. Like the idea that a IV monitor can set off an alarm at the nurse's station over Ethernet 
means less nurses, less people needed to monitor and staff and all these different things. And, and I think often in security, we fall on the side of, ah, you guys are, you know, you're all out of control and you're not doing anything right. And you're putting all these people at risk, but there's all these other factors in every organization and business that have to balance all these things out. And I, I think it's a good topic to think about. I, I solicit feedback if people want to email us at podcastsetsoffice.com. Uh, if you have ideas on, on how we solve some of these problems, it would be really interesting because I don't I don't think people often, everybody wants to look at it just from their own perspective. They're either either the patient or they're the security nerd or they're the guy that holds the purse strings and the budget at an institution. But none of those are really a balanced perspective. And um, I think that the community has to come together to solve some of these problems. Yeah, I mean, this is almost tied to Internet Explorer 6 again, the idea that basically you are using this solution that's in place to work with other things to solve those necessary problems. But it's just ripe for abuse like this. Well, yeah, and 30 years ago, we designed a specific system and then it stayed in place for 30 years. And people make fun of the Social Security Administration and the IRS in the U.S. for being on 30 and 40 year old computers that are barely adequate anymore. But yet I got my tax refund. And my social security, I still got my letter telling me my updates and when I retire, how much money I'm going to get. And it's running on a 40 year old system that was purpose built and designed to do a thing that it does. And it now it's definitely the end of its life. It does need to be replaced. But the people saying, let's replace it with Windows 7, blah, blah, blah. Well, 30 years from now, what's, what's going to be happen? with that? Yeah. And uh, I don't think we have answers. And some people think the answer is the cloud. Um, and maybe that is part of the answer. Uh, back to IE6, open standards. Like if we follow HTML5, you do all the things, you stick with a standard, suddenly the world's your oyster. It can be Safari, it could be this, it could be that, it could be Opera on your mobile phone. It's just going to work. Exactly. And it gets us out of the situation where we can at least, uh, the, the, the plentiful endpoints can be kept up to date perpetually. And the soft GUI center that holds all the data um, can be handled a little more delicately. Well, thanks for joining us, Gary. Uh, that wraps up Software Security Chat Chat 78. As always, you can get our podcasts at podcasts.sophos.com via RSS or on iTunes. And until next time, stay secure. Thank you, Chet, and uh, happy holidays. Happy holidays to you as well.